Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast with me, Jonathan Davis, and uh, my regular co-host, Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So we are two weeks on from the Easter holiday and we are coming up to another bank holiday uh, this weekend. But Simon, let's talk about the first full week of trading we've had for a while and tell us what's been going on in the markets before we get down to our normal diet of investment trust news. So in the first four trading days of the week, and we're recording this as always on Friday, the investment company sector actually found itself in negative territory, about 0.9% down. And that was actually a reflection. There was a bit of a sell-off at the start of the week. The markets were soft on Monday, and there's been a kind of process of gradual recovery since then. But in terms of where we are after those first four days, the investment company sector has underperformed the wider UK market. That found itself in about 0.3% negative territory at that stage. We've also seen the sector average discount widen out a little bit, and that's been a theme this year, really. So it moved in the week from about 4.4% to 5.5%. And that compares with the average this year to date, at least of 4.6%. So certainly a case of discounts widening. In terms of general market news, obviously, the war in Ukraine dominates the headlines and the fact that this week, Russia decided to cut off gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. And certainly there is a big focus on the energy and commodities sector in general. At the start of the week, we did see a sell-off in companies in that area. And really that was a reflection or a reaction to the impact of shutdowns in China and also arguably rising interest rates. But as the week went on, there was news of plans for a Chinese stimulus, uh, which helped the market to recover. And there was actually some interesting corporate news as well. So we've talked in recent weeks about some of these high growth technology companies some are performing very, very well, and others, frankly, are struggling a little bit. And this week, we heard that Amazon, in its first quarter of the year, reported its first quarterly loss since 2015. And in addition, and probably more importantly, actually, it's forecasting a slowdown in its revenue growth. Google also missed Wall Street estimates, and that was a reflection of the fact that advertising revenues softened for that company. So I think it's fair to say it's difficult conditions for technology and growth investors in general. Yes, yeah, so I think I'll just add to those data points. I mean, we had the rather surprising news, I think, to some people that uh, the first cut of the US GDP figures showed a decline in the first quarter, which I don't think anybody was expecting. Uh, and at the same time, we've had these uh, series of quite high profile earnings results, as you say, and some of those have been good, some of those have been not so good, as you correctly pointed out. But overall, I think it's the case that earnings, certainly in America and the US market, have come in above expectations. Well, that's always pretty normal these days. The expectations are set in order that they can be beaten. But the earnings results are actually quite positive overall on average. Uh, and so there is this slightly bizarre contrast between the earnings performance of US companies and the reported GDP figures. And it has to be said that GDP figures are often substantially revised later on. But it would certainly be a pointer, perhaps, that uh, the economy is slowing down uh, rather more quickly than people uh, initially uh, expected uh, because of these supply interruptions, because of the threat of rising interest rates and so on. So it's still a complex picture. I think we're all still struggling to try and make sense of it all in the round. Just in terms of the investment trust sector discount, you say it's winding out about 5%. How does that compare not just to the average you know, so far this year, but over the last few years, Discounts have traded in a pretty narrow range, apart from during these sort of big shock periods like the pandemic. So would you say that 5% is a uh, concerning level as far as you're concerned or as far as shareholders are going to be concerned? So if you look at the sector average discount, the average across 2021, that came in about 3.1% or so. Obviously, 2020, that was a quite a dramatic year. We did see the sector average discount widen out to about 22% during that kind of March 2020 sell-off. So that was incredibly dramatic, but equally it bounced back in very quick order as well. Um, so if you go back to kind of 2019, if we can think back that far before the pandemic, then the trend had been for uh, the sector average discount to move in. And my recollection is that at the end of 2019, the sector average discount stood about 1.1%. So it has been a marked derating since then. But you know, I'm talking about the overall level here, clearly, You've got to look at it sector by sector. You've got to look at it at the individual companies. 
and there are uh, you know still a large number of investment companies that consistently trade on premium ratings equally there are those that perhaps were used to trading around a 10% discount and now find themselves on a 15% discount or you know we talk quite a lot about private equity funds for instance you know many of those are in mid 20s or perhaps some even a little wider so there are certainly pockets of some people would say value or i think we could agree wide discounts springing up I guess one other point to make here is that one of the features of so far this year has been this uh, quite dramatic increase in bond yields. It's been the worst quarter for bonds. The first quarter was the worst for bonds investors in terms of the value of their bond holdings. It's been the worst quarter since, I think, 1980 or the early 1980s. So it's been very dramatic moves in the prices of some bonds as yields have gone up. But in terms of, you know, we know that investment trusts do have gearing. Therefore, there is an impact, indirect impact from higher interest rates if they're sustained over a period of time. But how far these days are investment trusts actually exposed to higher interest rates? I mean, a lot of them have been able to refinance their debt at, at much lower levels, I think. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And the answer will be it varies. It depends quite a lot. So um, it has been a real pattern for a number of years for investment trust companies to, to kind of lock in those very low interest rates and take out in some cases, some very long-term debt levels, but equally there'll be those that rely on on shorter-term financing, so kind of revolving credit facilities, and and obviously there you're more subject to changing interest rates. So it will depend quite a lot. I suspect most investment managers would make the observation that even though we are seeing interest rates rise, they're still at relatively low levels. Uh, We're coming from a very low base here, so you know there's still a lot to go for. Indeed. So it's just I was really kind of making the point that. we do know that there is a, a sort of correlation between the level of discounts and whether the market is going up or down. So in other words, when the market's falling, there tends to be the discounts widen a bit. Uh, and that's partly because of the gearing, but partly for other reasons as well, sort of sentiment reasons. That would be a fair comment, presumably. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, and you can see that back over any number of years, that pattern, that correlation between the sex average discount and, and market moves. Okay, so that's the market for this week, as far as we've heard about it so far this week, and it is Friday uh, afternoon we're recording this. Let's move on then to our Investment Trust news, and we're going to kick off with a quick update on a matter of uh, corporate activity, and that concerns Rockwood Realisation, ticker RKW, where perhaps you could fill us in on what this uh, Investment Trust used to be called and uh, what it's had to say or what's happened this week. Yeah, that's right. So I think we talked about this one uh, on a number of occasions in recent weeks and indeed months. I mean, it used to be called the Gresham House Strategic Fund. It moved across to Howard Capital, but at that stage adopted uh, a kind of managed realisation, managed wind down policy. That changed after Gresham House had a stake in the company that was bought out by Howard Capital, who now own about 29% of this particular investment vehicle. Um, They asked the board to look again at that realisation strategy The board put proposals to shareholders to change to a kind of ongoing active investing in UK small cap. And lo and behold, this week we found out that shareholders approved that change in investment policy. Just short of 96% of the shares were voted in favour. So this has gone from the fund to disappear in a relatively short order. It's now an ongoing vehicle again. And the fund's name will change to Rockwood Strategic in due course to reflect that change in investment policy. And has anything happened to the share price around all this uh, activity? Well, in in terms of the rating, in terms of the discount, it's on about a 13% discount or so at the moment. I mean, obviously, the share price will reflect the NAV movements, which are obviously subject to the underlying portfolio. But in terms of the discount, that's on about 13%. And that compares with an average of about 10% over the previous 12 months. So if Hayward Capital are, you know, they obviously want to grow this vehicle. It's a relatively small fund at the moment, 36 million pound market cap. So in order to achieve that, they really need to get a re-rating of this one. They need to move that discount in. But that hasn't happened yet, obviously. Okay, so we'll move on then. We can talk about some fundraising. I mean, despite these choppy markets, we have said there hasn't been much fundraising this year, but there has been some. And there have been two more announcements this week, I think, which we need to catch up with. So let's kick off, first of all, with International Public Partnerships, ticker INPP who announced that they'd had a very successful placing. Effectively, they raised £325 million, and that was uh, in excess of their initial targets. They were looking to raise £250 million, but obviously there was strong demand. 
And I think even despite that increase, I think there was still some quite strong demand behind this one. So what are they going to do with the proceeds? Well, they're going to pay down 156 million of their debt facility. And in addition to that, uh, they will support their pipeline of new investments. There'll be 204 million or so shares issued at the price of 159 spot 5p. And the last time they came to the market, actually, interestingly enough, was in July last year. At that stage, they raised 135 million, and that was at a share price of 165p. And what is the attraction of this particular trust? I mean, it sits in the infrastructure space. Uh, is there anything particularly distinctive about it? What's been their sort of pitch in this in this case? So this has been one of the most kind of long-established infrastructure plays that we've got in the kind of social infrastructure subsector. I mean, certainly size is not unimportant. So it's got a market cap of just short of three billion or so now, and its yield as well, its dividend record. So on a historic basis, yielding about four point seven percent. So it's one that has a good long-term track record. That's reflected in its premium rating and reflected in the fact that it's it's enjoyed a very strong placing. So that must make it one of the biggest trusts in the infrastructure space. I'm thinking maybe uh, Hickel is up there about the same size. Is that right? Yeah, Hickel, just a little bit ahead of it. It's not too much in it, to be honest. I mean, Hickel, about 3.4 billion. You've also got Trig, so the Renewables Infrastructure Group, that's about 3.3 billion. Uh, and you know, we shouldn't forget Greencoat UK Wind as well, about 3.6, 3.7 billion. So these uh, investment companies focused on infrastructure, albeit they do differ. Um, they're not doing exactly the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. They have been very successful in a relatively short period of time and very successful in terms of delivering on their investment case, but also in, in raising new capital. And just in terms of what's happened to the share price of that one, I mean, the, the place has obviously gone well. So has the share moved up again after that? Or is it uh, still, as we say, absorbing this new share issue? <laughs> So I've got the share price at the moment about 167p, somewhere in that region. So as I mentioned, that new money was raised at 159 spot 5p. And then again, that suggests that that was a placing that was quite well supported. So even though they raised money last year at a higher price, that uh, hasn't seemed to deter anybody. That's not the normal pattern, is it? It depends a little bit on the asset class. I mean, clearly, in the case of international public partnerships, and for that matter, a number of these infrastructure plays, it's a total return story. So you're getting quite a large element of the return through the dividend. So you know the share price clearly not unimportant at all, but I would suggest it's probably a secondary element compared with the, the dividend history. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about uh, supermarket income REIT, uh, ticker SUPR, which is another uh, fabulously uh, successful at raising money and indeed uh, very highly rated and regarded by investors. Uh, and tell us what uh, they've done on the fundraising front. Yeah, so initially they said they were looking to raise about 175 million, maybe up to a, a maximum of 300 million. And obviously, when they uh, went out and consulted the market, they did see a strong level of support. And in addition to that, the investment advisor of this particular investment company is pretty confident in acquiring assets in the pipeline, which is something that we've talked about quite a lot, this idea that you don't want to create a situation where you uh, suffer from cash drag and therefore act as a headwind to returns. So they did indeed raise that £300 million. And in fact, they raised an additional just short of £7 million through their primary bid offer. But despite that increase in the issue size, investor demand substantially exceeded the maximum size. And in fact, there was a material scaling back exercise as well. But those new shares that were issued, probably on about 250 million in total, they began trading on Friday, 29th of April. And how did they begin trading? Again, tell us what the story is on that one. I mean, they've traded at a premium, obviously, for a long time. And uh, remind us how the share price compares to the issue price. Yep. So I've got them on my screen about 127p or so at the moment. That's in line with their closing price on the Thursday, i.e. just ahead of the announcement about how much money was raised. And how has this been uh, received? The new shares, as, as you say, started trading today. Uh, what's happened? Have they gone back to the kind of premium they're at before? Yeah, that's right. So they're trading on, on 127p or so at the moment. That compares with a placing price of 121p. So well done if you managed to get involved in that particular placing. Um, and that placing price represented a 7% premium to their EPRA NAV, so effectively their NAV per share. So this has been extraordinarily successful, as you said. I mean, I was having a quick look at the list, comparing it to some of the, you know, kind of mainstream commercial property trusts. 
And it's actually bigger than some of them, or getting up to the same kind of size as some of these commercial property trusts which have been around for what seems like yonks. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a very fair point. So I've got them on a market cap of about 1.5, probably nearly 1.6 billion pounds now when you factor in that new share issuance. Um, And you're absolutely right, compared with some of the uh, kind of tried and tested names in the commercial property sector, uh, I mean, very familiar names such as UK Commercial Property, that's about 1.2 billion. LXI REIT is a a kind of more newer arrival, that's about 1.4 billion. And then you've got the BMO Commercial Property Fund, that's about 840 million or so at the moment. So this vehicle has really come from nowhere and overtaken some many uh, well-established names. Yes, because it was only came to the market five years ago, I think. that was It's coming up to its fifth anniversary, I think. So it has been a remarkable story. It just demonstrates how these kind of specialist investment trusts, which you can't readily invest in these kind of assets uh, through any other kind of fund, uh, have actually really proved their worth uh, and remain very popular, not least because of their yield. But despite that premium, I think they're offering something similar, kind of similar yield to uh, INPP. Would that be about right? Yeah, so the yield um, on a historic basis is about 4.7%, just a little bit under that. But um, yeah, there's a very respectable yield level uh, compared with its UK commercial property peer group and indeed some of the infrastructure names as well. So uh, you you mentioned IMPP, that has a yield of about 4.7 as well. Okay, so that's a good sign. But there is some health in the uh, fundraising side of the market, at least. That's something to uh, be positive about. And I guess might also, the fact that both these uh, placings have been uh, increased in size, or at least uh, grown somewhat, does suggest that it might also have something to do with the fact that uh, investors have become rather more defensive in the last few months. They might find these kind of yield plays rather more appealing than uh, some of the growth names that you've been talking about. So still a fertile market for that kind of Uh, fundraising exercise. So let's move on then and talk about some results now. And we're going to kick off with a uh, global equity income trust, and that is Henderson International Income Trust, ticker H-I-N-T or HINT. And you can give us more than a hint about how their performance has been. Well, these were interim results for the six months to the end of February. In that time, they generated an NAV total return. It was down uh, about half a percent with debt at par or up. 0.4% 0.4% with debt at fair value. In terms of the share price total return, that was very much in positive territory, up 2% as the discount narrowed from about probably 9% to nearer 6%. And that 2% increase compared with a rise of 1.9% for the benchmark. It's worth just pausing there and talking about the benchmark, actually, because they've changed their benchmark during this period. So historically, it's been the MSCI World XUK Index. The XUK is quite important because this is the kind of differentiator of this particular investment trust that it doesn't invest in the UK. So the idea very much behind it was, uh, you know, for many investors, they can buy vehicles directly that do UK equity income, or they might want to hold some UK stocks themselves. But this was designed to take care of everything else. They've changed that benchmark, though, to become the MSCI World or All Country World Index, XUK High Dividend Yield Index. So specifically looking at those companies, as the name would suggest, with a higher dividend yield. Uh, And I would suggest that's probably not unimportant given the investment approach and also the fact that over recent years, we have seen this incredible dispersion between those kind of higher growth and often technology companies and the wider marketplace. And I suspect that Hint was probably on the wrong side of that. In terms of how Hint's performed in this six-month period with regard to its revenue, well, the revenue return per share came in at 2.26p. That was up quite a lot from the comparable period in 2021 when they generated 1.68p. And again, this is a familiar story for many kind of dividend hunters out there that they have seen or they are seeing quite a marked pickup in dividends. And they also paid and declared two interim dividends of 1.8p each. Though from Janice Henderson and the manager, Ben Lofthouse, he's been managing this one from launch. It wasn't all good news because the management fee has been reduced. So effectively, it's gone to a single rate of 0.575%, and that's effective from September this year. Okay, so this is in the global equity income sector, and as you say, uh, trying to differentiate itself. So what kind of yield would you be getting if you invested in this particular vehicle, and uh, who should we be comparing it to? So the yield on a historic basis at the moment is about 3.9%, which is slightly above the average for the peer group, probably about 3.6% across that global equity income space. I mean, names that people will be familiar with include Murray International, the Aberdeen fund managed by Bruce Stout. Uh, That has a yield at the moment of about 4.4%. 
Also, JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, that trades around NAV, has a yield of 3.3%. That pays an enhanced dividend, so they look to pay about 4% of NAV back to shareholders every year. And in fact, we have talked about that fund quite a bit because they have a merger pending with Scottish Investment Trust. Um, and then the other name that, again, people will be very familiar with in that space is the Scottish American Investment Company, and that's part of the Bailey Gifford stable, also trading on a small premium rating with a yield a little bit lower than some of the others, actually about 2.5% at the moment. Well, this is a good uh, pretext for me to mention the Moneymakers Circle, our subscription weekly newsletter, because we recently did a profile of Scottish American or Saints, and uh, we've also just done a couple of other profiles of trusts which are global in nature. They're very different in the way they approach matters. One of those is Capital Gearing, and the other is Pershing Square Holdings, two names we've talked about from time to time on this podcast. And we've added a couple of profiles of those two, which I think you might find interesting if you go there, along with most of our regular features there, including a summary of links to results and commentary on what's going on. So we move on to the UK results. We're going to kick off by talking about Fidelity's Special Values, ticker FSV which is a uh, trust that follows a value strategy and has uh, its fortunes have risen and fallen to some extent with the fortunes of value as an approach as opposed to growth. So uh, tell us how they did. They produced some interim results, I think. Yeah, that's right. So these were interim results again to the end of February. And in that time, they saw an NAV total return down 4.5%. And that compared with a rise of 2.4% for the FTSE All Share Index. In share price terms, not dissimilar to the NAV, actually down about 4.7%. So what happened during the period? Well, the funds, the portfolios, industrials and consumer discretionary holdings, they proved a drag on returns, as was the underweight exposure to metals and mining. And again, this is a familiar story when you talk to UK focused investment managers. If you haven't certainly in recent times been overweight, uh, commodities, energy, metals and mining, then you've probably struggled to beat the benchmark. Also, there were a few stock-specific issues in this six-month period as well, and that included companies such as Studio Rental, Inchgate, Mitty Group, while the lack of exposure to HSBC also acted as a detractor. So HSBC, obviously a big weighting in the FTSE All Share. There were some positive contributors, though, including Gemfields and MNC Saatchi. And actually, there was some interesting commentary from the manager. So it's Alex Wright of Fidelity. He estimated that the portfolio currently trades on about a 20 to 30% discount in value terms to the UK market. And that's looking at the earnings within the portfolio. But that said, he has reduced the level of gearing down. So we talked about gearing earlier on. So in the period, so this started compared with August last year, I think it was about nearly 15% at that stage. And at the end of February, it was back down to about 7%. And in fact, that included 4% held in companies that received cash bids. So you know, some people would argue that's a cash proxy. So that level of gearing has come right down. So this has been on a bit of a ride, this particular trust. It's been, it was uh, very popular before the pandemic hit and performed well and mostly traded around a premium for a couple of years, I think. But then it got hit very badly during the, uh, the pandemic sell-off and recovered very strongly. So it had a very strong period before this particular interim period. But since then, it sort of basically tracked sideways a little bit before the recent sell-off. And it's uh, gone back to a discount, I think, which has not been its recent experience for a while anyway. Yeah, that's right. So I've got around about a 2% discount or so at the moment. And that compares with an average rating over the last 12 months of about 1% premium. So it has been derated a little bit. And you're right. I mean, you know, this is a very actively managed investment portfolio. It's not a proxy for the UK market. So Alex Wright, I mean, his background, he was a manager in the, in the kind of mid and small cap space uh, in the UK market. So he's very familiar with names. So this is very much a kind of all cap investment approach. Uh, so you, you will see some very large and familiar names in the portfolio, but equally, he's quite happy to back names that perhaps many people will be less familiar with. How's he performed over the long term? His numbers are strong. And actually, even despite a more challenging period in recent times, I mean, over the last five years, NAV total return is up 31%. And that compares to a rise of 26% for the FTSE All Share. Yeah. So given how the UK market has been relatively strong uh, this year, I say relatively, but uh, and it's actually traded pretty well, I guess he might be a little bit disappointed by this particular six-month period. But they, you know, he obviously he's seeking to explain that by saying that the discount of which his portfolio companies uh, trade is a very large discount to the rest of the UK market. 
But I mean, he, basically, he's been affected by the this kind of trend against small and mid-cap stocks has really sold off quite substantially. So that would be presumably one of the reasons why he has underperformed. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and to be honest, he's in good company. So you see this with a number of investment companies, particularly those that are actively managed. So I caught up with Laura Fall of Janice Henderson this week, and she's involved with Lowland uh, Investment Company. And again, they have a very similar approach in as much as they are you know, more value contrarian. They're very much about the stock ideas. They're very much about all cap. Uh, and I discussed with Laura, you know, what was the position? Or what was the outlook with regard to the UK? And it's very, very difficult at the moment because they can look at valuations and say, in their opinion, these companies look very, very cheap. And you know there are good prospects in terms of earnings growth, despite higher labor costs and supply chain shortages. They think the good companies will, will cope with this. But then equally at the same time, if we do have a recession in the UK, and I don't think that's many people's core outlook, but it is at least a possibility on a couple of year view, then all bets are off and many of these companies will have a, a more difficult time of it. So it is tricky at the moment, but one of the questions that I ask Laura and I ask of all UK managers is, you know, what changes this, the UK market is cheap at the moment? Because frankly, they've been saying this for quite a few years, going back before the EU referendum in 2016. We know the, the UK market's cheap, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it stops being cheap. And so we talked around what might happen. And, and one of the things that came up, and again, this is familiar story, is the idea that we'll see a pickup in M&A activity, that sooner or later, the value that these companies offer mean that they're very attractive to, to trade buyers or to, to be taken out by private equity outfits or, or so on and so forth. Indeed. And uh, so I also uh, heard some commentary from the managers of the uh, Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Trust, managed by Harry Nimmo and his colleagues. And they were making a similar kind of point in terms of the kind of model they use to value companies. They were saying that uh, this were going through what they would describe as one of these periodic periods when their kind of companies get hit. They're a growth investor, so they're a slightly different situation to uh, Alex Wright at Fidelity. But you know they're also making the same story from the other end of the, the style approach, if you like. But you're right, it's frustrating for them and frustrating for anybody who's invested in those trusts that you know, we do get these periods and they don't seem to be you know, this great vaunted uh, UK revival has not yet materialised consistently enough across the piece. So that's certainly one to watch. Let's move on then and talk about Troy Income and Growth, ticker TIGT, who've uh, also had some interim results, but this is to the end of March rather than the end of February, as was the case with uh, Fidelity Special Values. That's right. And they're in positive territory, at least. Uh, they generated an NAV total return at 1.8%. Uh, and that was the same in both NAV and share price total return terms. Uh, however, that also represents an underperformance compared with the wider UK market. So the FTSE All Share Index up 4.7% in that six-month period. It's worth noting, actually, try income and growth pursue a zero discount policy. So they bought back about 17, 17 and a half million shares in that six-month period. But the underperformance, that was attributed to an aversion to more cyclical capital intensive sectors. So by that, I think we can assume the more commodities and energy type companies. And the focus really remains, and they've been consistent on this for any number of years, on companies capable of generating what they describe as free cash flow. So if you look at where the portfolio is, their largest holdings are in consumer staples, Diageo, Nestle, Unilever, business to business focused software, Experian such as Paychex and Relix, and Healthcare, AstraZeneca, and GlaxoSmithKline. But they did make some new investments in the period. So Diploma, Halma, Intercontinental Hotels Group, and 3i Infrastructure, which is, of course, in the investment company sector. But this one's managed by Hugo Yur and Blake Hutchings of Troy Asset Management, and they've agreed to reduce their management fee. That's coming down to 55 basis points or 0.55% on net assets up to £250 million and 0.5% thereafter. Yes. Now, as I recall, there's obviously been a change of manager here not so long ago. Francis Brook stepped down after many years running this trust uh, with his colleagues. And they also, of course, I seem to recall, changed their mandate or their objective somewhat because they uh, were of the view that the kind of dividend target that they were required to meet was unrealistic given the the potential that was within the uh, UK market at that time. So they kind of volunteered to take a, <laughs> to target a lower dividend yield than some of their peer group, at least. How does that work out? I mean, how does their yield now compare to that of some of their bigger competitors? So I've got them on a historic dividend yield of about 2.6% at the moment. And that certainly kind of puts them at the lower end 
uh, of the UK equity income peer group. So on average, or weighted cap average is about probably 3.9%. So you have various names on kind of 6 5%, many around about the 4%, but they're towards the lower end. I'm just looking at names such as City of London Investment Trust on about 4.6% yield. Uh, JP Morgan Claver House, that's on about 4.4% yield. We mentioned Lowland earlier, that's on about 4.7% yield. So to get a yield of between four and five is not uncommon in that space. Right. But I think their premise was that if you target that kind of yield, you know, you won't be able to make the same kind of returns as you could do with a lower dividend yield target. But has that actually been the case in terms of their relative performance over, say, the last couple of years? I can't quite remember when the change was made, to be honest. But how does their performance compare? You know, have they actually uh, made up in capital terms what they've given up in terms of yield? Yeah, no, it's a good argument. I mean, again, my recollection is they made the change in 2020. I might be wrong in that, but I think it is a few years ago. I mean, certainly if you look, and I don't have the two-year numbers in front of me, but if you look over three years at least, they've generated an NEV total return of 7% in that time, and that compares with 13% for the FTSE All Share Index. In terms of their wider peer group, gosh, there's quite a range of returns, and I'd suggest to you that that's probably a function of the fact that some have deployed gearing, some have quite stronger mid and small cap biases, and others, frankly, have got it right, particularly in recent times, in backing some of the resources and energy companies. So if you look at a company such as Merchants Investment Trust, which is part of the Allianz stable, that's up 31% in NAV total return terms over that three-year period. Also, um, you know, we mentioned Laura Fall, and she works alongside James Henderson. They're both responsible for the investment portfolio of Law Debenture, and that's up 32% in NAV total return terms over that same three-year period. Okay, so let's move on from the UK now. We're going to look overseas, and we're going to kick off with Henderson Far East Income, ticker HFEL. They've had interim results to the end of February this year as well. Yeah, and again, another quiet time of it, actually. The NAV total return was down about 0.1%, though that it did actually represent an outperformance. So their benchmark, the FTSE All World Asia Pacific X Japan Index, was down 6.3%. In share price terms, they came in down about 0.7%. So that relative outperformance, well, it really reflected the rotation from growth to value and uh, also the fund's increased allocation to sectors such as financials, materials, and energy. Going back to our comments earlier, you really had to get those right to outperform in this period. So unsurprisingly, their top contributors in that time were from the financials and energy sectors, while the detractors, again, unsurprisingly, were from Chinese mid-cap companies. So the dividends are an important part of the Henderson Far East income story. And during this period, they saw an increase in their revenue per share. That was up about 15% or so and came in at 6.55p. And in fact, the funds already declared two interim dividends, so basically every quarter, and they represented 5.9p each, and they were up about 2% year on year. Okay, and so hopefully that is reflected, all this work they're putting in is reflected in a decent yield, but uh, is it going to be covered or not? So the yield is quite strong, actually. It's about 7.8% or so on a historic basis, and um, that puts it as the highest yielding Asia-Pacific income fund out there, a number around about the 4 or 5%, but this is some way ahead of that. It's a good question. So it was uncovered in that particular period. But I suspect the investment management team would say, well, you've got to judge us on a 12-month period because sometimes you know, these dividends come in at different times and all the rest of it. So make sure you look how we perform over the full year. Okay. And on that point, it might be worth just making the, res- the point that uh, obviously the uh, direction of your results will depend a little bit on your period end. Uh, if you ended in January, you were slightly better placed than if you ended in February after the Russian invasion and and slightly better than if you're reporting that some will be soon at the end of March. But of course, you can only compare apples with apples, not with pears. But obviously, it is seen as a token of some importance by fund managers. They want to produce a positive return over their period if they can. But often it's outside their ability, given the market movements over that particular period. Anyway, let's move on with another company, which uh, this one is reporting interims to the 31st of January. And that is Schroeder Japan Growth, ticker SJG. And they generated an NAV total return of 1% in that six-month period, which represented an outperformance. Their benchmark was actually down about 0.6%, as was their share price. Actually, their share price total return came in negative 1% down or so, and that was a reflection of the fact that discount widened 
from about 10% to about 11.5% in the period. So what happened here? Well, they saw a number of positive contributions from companies such as Tokyo Marine Holdings and T&D Holdings, while actually not owning Sony and Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group detracted. But the manager has been busy, has made a number of new investments and obviously a few disposals. So this is Masaki Takusami. He makes a strong case that he believes that better corporate governance in Japan will lead to sustainable improvements in return on equity. And that's really what he's trying to look for when he comes to make his stock selection. So again, this idea that corporate governance in Japan, possibly, arguably coming from quite a low base, but seeing material improvement in recent years, and actually that can generate quite a lot of returns over the long term for investors. That's certainly an idea that he subscribes to. Yes, it's not been a great period for Japan, of course, as a market overall. Let's talk about Vietnam Enterprise, ticker V-E-I-L, or Vale. They've had some annual results for the year ended the 31st of December, so a little bit further back in time. Yeah, and 2021 was a great year for Vietnam. In fact, the Vietnamese index, or the one that this particular investment company uses, was up 39%. But actually, the NAV of this particular investment company was up 47.1%, so materially outperformed it. Despite that, it's still trading on quite a big discount, about 18% discount or so at the moment. And they bought back about 3.4 million shares last year, worth $33 million. But outperformance, well, that reflected their core overweight positions in three key sectors, being infrastructure, banks, and properties. And certainly they had about 38% of the portfolio in banks. I think when I last looked at the end of February or March, real estate was about 26% of the portfolio. So a very interesting set of results, this one for Vietnam Enterprise. A lot of discussion about the prospects for Vietnam. And I know for some people who follow the Far East carefully, there's always a little bit of excitement about uh, what the Vietnamese economy might see in the years to come. Indeed. So that was a very strong year. But how have they performed since? How has the shares done since the end of the year, given what's going on around the world? So, I mean, look, it's been a quieter period, um, as it has for everybody. So I haven't got the year-to-date numbers in front of me, but I can tell you over the last three months, the share price is it's up, but it's up about 1% or so. So the NAV probably down, in fact, about 1%. So it's been a quieter year-to-date so far. Still pretty creditable in the in the circumstances. Right, let's move on and talk now about some specialist trust. We talked about uh, one of them was coming up not so long ago, uh, earlier in this podcast. Let's kick off with Aquila European Renewables Income, ticker AERS and AERI. They've had some annual results, and this is not to be confused with the other Aquila Trust that we've been talking about recently for different reasons, where things have become a little uh, complicated, shall we say. Yes, that's right. So these were the annual results for Aquila European Renewables Income and a positive set of results. Actually, the NAV total return came in at 7.6%. In terms of shareholder return, that was up about half a percent. They paid a dividend of $0.05, cents, uh, and that was 1.1 times covered. They also stipulated their dividend target would be at least $0.5.25 cents for 2022. So what was going on here? Well, actually, funnily enough, power generation came in about 8% or so below budget. And that was driven by weaker than expected wind conditions, particularly in the Nordics, and lower than expected irradiation levels in Portugal. So it wasn't that blowy up in Norway, and it wasn't that sunny in Portugal. However, revenue came in at 10% ahead of the budget. And that was a result, perhaps unsurprisingly, of higher than expected electricity prices and some other revenues that it enjoyed as well. So where is this particular investment company now? Well, they've contracted their revenues, about 69% of their revenues or so over the next five years. And in fact, in terms of the weighted average remaining life of the contracted revenues overall, it's average about eight years or so. It's also worth noting that this particular investment company has quite a high level of construction exposure, actually, just short of 29% at the end of 2021, that differentiates it from a number of the renewables plays. And one of the other things to note as well is that Aquila as a house are quite active in terms of trying to take advantage of moves in power prices, although um, there obviously are contract out. Some of those are through uh, power price agreements. They're invariably on a short-term basis, probably three to five years. So the idea is that they're very much looking to capture some of the upside. But the model is that they would seem to have a preference to 
build out uh, assets and projects rather than buy. So there is an element of development within this portfolio, which again, you don't necessarily see in some of the other renewable energy plays. So it's not quite the same as not directly comparable with uh, some of the other renewables, as you say, but then nor is the performance been particularly impressive or at least less impressive than some of the other renewable energy trusts, which have uh, done very well and proved very popular. This one, I think, has been around since around uh, 2019. So that's about three years ago. And as I see it, the share price is still around where they started. It, uh, obviously, they paid out a dividend over that time. And their rating is what? How do their rating compare to some of the others that are in this similar kind of game? I, I think it's quite notable, actually. So we've got them on about a 1% premium or so, um, which sounds you know, relatively respectable. And of course, it is. But when you compare it across its peer group, the probably average premium rating is between about 10 and 12%, something of that order. So its valuation level is significantly lower. In terms of its dividend record, well, I mentioned that they've got that target to pay out 5.25 cents in 2022, but they're running on a historic dividend yield of 4.9% at the moment. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's one that's just a little bit overlooked. Certainly, they did have issues initially with a project called Rock in Norway. I think there were some construction issues with a wind farm there, which apparently have now been resolved. And they made it clear in the results that there are no further equity funding requirements expected for that particular project. Um, But certainly, as we've seen for other investment companies in the early days following a launch, you don't want too many things to go wrong because people do tend to remember those things and they can act as a bit of an overhang on the rating. But uh, as you mentioned, they've been up and running a a number of years now. They're fully invested uh, and they're generating uh, this dividend track record. And given where the share price is, that uh, 5.25 cent target, presumably somewhere around 5% yield prospectively, given the the share price is still around a euro. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Greencoat UK Wind. You mentioned them before, one of the veterans of the renewable energy sector. And they've had uh, an update, uh, ticker UKW. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so these are not results, but this is a quarterly update for the three months to the end of March. But I think it's a very interesting update, actually, and worth consideration in as much as they announced that their NAV per share was up 11.8%. It was up 16p over that three-month period. Now, that's a big uplift for a renewable energy infrastructure fund. So it's worth thinking about how that came to pass. And there's a few different moving parts, effectively, I mean, cash generation, that brought about 3p, 7p came from forward power prices, 6p came from inflation assumptions for 2022, which obviously one would expect would be higher. And then also you had generation which came in above budget. So there's different elements here, but effectively, I think this was probably, it was fair to say, kind of the perfect period for Greencoat UK wind, that everything kind of went in their favour, which is why you saw that decent uplift in the NAV. Where are they at the end of March? Well, they had total gearing of about 21% of gross assets. They did have some cash balances and they also had some more funds, about £600 million available to draw under their credit facility. So one would assume that gives them scope to make new investments and keep building the portfolio out. It's worth noting that net assets stood at not too far off £3.5 billion at the end of March. So this is a substantial investment company. On the dividend side, they declared a quarterly dividend of 1.93p. Right. That's a very impressive NAV figure. And that might explain a little bit why the shares were trading at such a big premium, because obviously some people were able to infer or deduce that they were doing particularly well in this environment because they're, as you say, a perfect, uh, I can't say a perfect storm for them. That wouldn't be helpful, but a perfect set of conditions for them anyway during this quarter. So what does it look like now? I mean, it's worth saying about UK Wind, I think, if you look at their objective, it says that their objective is to deliver, a, uh, I think, a dividend stream above inflation while preserving capital values. But in fact, they've done considerably better than that, haven't they, over, over the time since they were launched, because they've actually delivered both, essentially. They've delivered a decent yield, and they've also uh, experienced some not insignificant capital gain as well. Yeah, I think it's hard to argue against that, to be honest. I mean, to put some numbers around that, the NAV total return over five years is up 63%. The numbers in front of me would suggest in terms of the yield where they stand today, and that's despite the fact they trade on a premium, their yield on a historic basis is about 4.5%. So they're still offering a yield that I suspect many investors would be happy with. 
I mean, we have seen other vehicles in the past enjoy quite strong success. And as a result of that, you see a compression in the yield. The yield comes lower and lower. And uh, that isn't the case with Greencoat UK Wind. They have managed to continue to grow that dividend. So, yeah, possibly one of the reasons or some of the key reasons why it trades on such a strong rating. Let's then move on and talk about NB Private Equity. Very different animal, this one. Ticket NBPE. And they've had annual results for last year to the 31st of December. Yeah, so there were two aspects of this. That there were the results, as you rightly say, for last year, and we'll cover those off briefly. But then they gave a kind of Q1 update, which, given the way the world has changed over the last three months, felt slightly more interesting. So just to talk about the results for 2021, I mean, it was an incredibly strong year for MB Private Equity, and I think possibly we talked about this before. The NAV total return was up 45%. The share price total return was up 65%. That reflected the fact that their underlying portfolio companies saw very strong revenue and uh, profit growth of 27% and 28% respectively. They also enjoyed a very high level of realizations, raising over $400 million. And actually, that represented about 30, 31% of the opening portfolio. In addition to it, those realizations, well, on average, they represented an 83% uplift to prior year values and a 3.3 times multiple of cost. And again, for people who are familiar with private equity, that's a very high level of return, albeit for just a 12-month period. So that was all last year. What's happened this year, which, as I said, is possibly more important. Well, their NAV at the end of March was down 3% from the end of 2021. However, it's worth noting that there's different bits of the portfolio it was only kind of 20% of the portfolio was effectively revalued at the end of March. The vast majority of about 78% was still valued at the 31st of December, albeit moved for foreign exchange movements or any kind of disposals or additions. But that 20%, the majority of that reflected the quoted portfolio. And that's where we've seen some other private equity companies hit, actually, where they have had exposure to the public markets, quoted companies, and where they've sold off over the first three months of this year. Overall, they were 3% down. Obviously, we'll wait to see the kind of full realization over the next few months. But they made the point that they're still seeing you know, reasonably decent level of uh, realizations. They totaled $77 million in the first three months of the year. So this is just one of these very interesting things about the private equity trust, You know how you value them and what numbers to look at and whether the numbers are ever quite, well, they're never quite up to date. The question is how seasoned are they, if you like, and what's happened since? And I think you know, I've seen a number of comments about the fact that uh, a lot of these valuable private equity holdings have come to market, but then they have disappointed, certainly during uh, periods of weakness in the overall equity markets, which is what we've seen this year, of course. So uh, just getting to a realisation isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all. It does matter also, as long as you retain a stake in the companies you've been backing, that uh, it, it is important still what happens after they've come to market. And uh, I think we talked about, obviously, that's even more extreme in the cases of potentially in cases like Chrysalis and Shehalion, which are in earlier stage companies. So um, obviously, we're going to hear from other private equity trusts. We've heard from some already. Uh, but this is going to be a, a feature, presumably, as long as the public equity markets uh, remain weak. Would that be a fair comment? These uh, quoted components of the portfolio will be affected by what's happening in the, in the main equity markets. And also, there might be a read across back to the ones that are still in the portfolio and valued at old prices, so to speak. Yes, look, I mean, I think overall the expectation when we do get the full valuations at the end of March is that you'll probably see many of them down from the end of December for the reasons that you've just outlined. So the performances of their quoted holdings, not all of them do have quoted holdings, it's worth noting, but where they do, one can make the approximate assumption that they will be down on balance. In addition, um, the way that private equity holdings are valued, they're on comparable market multiples. So they look at what they call comparable uh, or comps, as they term it, uh, across the public market and then apply them to the earnings of their private companies. Now, obviously, the market in general, at least, and particularly in the kind of smaller capital growth end, we've seen those weaken. So that would act as a headwind. And also there's currency movements as well. So overall, will NAV soften when we get the full NAVs at the end of Q1? Yes, they probably will. However, the question is not so much will they, it's to what degree, to what extent, and is it to the extent that justifies the derating across the listed private equity space that we've seen so far this year? Bearing in mind, if you look at uh, you know, private equity fund of funds at the moment, then the weighted average discount on that subsect is probably about 28 29%, which is quite wide on a historic basis. So have those deratings been overdone? 
And I'm sure there's some across the listed private equity space who would argue, yeah, almost certainly. Okay, well, that's something we can track as time goes by. Let's move on and talk about Round Hill Music Royalty Fund. We haven't talked about music royalties for a long time, or at least not as much as we used to do. So tell us about this one, ticker RHM. What do they have to say? Well, these were the annual results from this fund's incorporation, which was August 2020 to the end of last year, so a slightly extended period. In that time, their economic NAV total return came in at 17.6% up, whereas the share price total return came in in positive territory up 9.3%. So again, we have talked about this particular fund quite a bit in the past, and they deployed about $400 million US dollars during that period to acquire 49 catalogues comprising 122,000 songs, and they've generated a net revenue to date of just short of about $24 million. So the dividend per share for the period uh, came in about 4.5 cents, and that was in line with the 4.5% target yield. Now, this fund does have a C-share, and in fact, the C-share conversion is going to be calculated on the 29th of April, so Friday at the end of this week, with the admission of those new ordinary shares expected on the 11th of May. And that's not unimportant because that gives the, the fund a slightly larger footprint and a critical mass. Uh, they're almost fully invested as well, actually, or certainly they were at the end of 2021. They had about net cash of $22 million at that stage. Okay, so is it possible to calculate what will happen when the uh, the C shares are uh, incorporated into the main share class? I mean, how is this one doing in terms of uh, the dividend? You mentioned the dividend. What, what kind of yield are you getting on that or will you get when this is complete, do you think? So on a historic basis, the dividend yield equates to about 4.2% or so at the moment. Um, so as I mentioned, it's about 4.5 cents, so it's a slightly extended period. Um, in terms of the C-share moving over, I don't have those numbers to hand at the moment, but I can tell you that in terms of the ordinary share class, they had about a market cap of about £280 million, pounds, that's in sterling currently. Um, so it's still substantially smaller than hypnosis, uh, hypnosis songs fund which has a market cap of about 1.4 billion sterling at the moment okay and the market cap will obviously be affected by the movement in the uh, dollar sterling exchange rate because nearly all music royalties are dollar based i think so that's that one uh it's worth making the point perhaps that uh, we talked about a lot of trusts today uh, which have got yields ranging from four to seven percent and i guess if there's any kind of comfort to be drawn from the relatively poor performance this year that will be it, that the yields are going up. If you buy some of these trusts as they either derate or the share price falls, the range of dividend yields looks more attractive at least, uh, albeit that inflation is also going up, of course, and uh, therefore in real terms, not quite as good as it uh, might previously have been. Let's talk next about hedge funds. They're going to come back to uh, third point investors. That's ticker TPOU. Uh, this is the hedge fund led by Dan Loeb, who got himself in a spot of bother with some of the shareholders last year because of his <laughs> comments about things. But uh, they've had an annual results for the year. And uh, tell us how they did. They had a good year, actually. Their NAV return was up about 24% or so, 23.6 to be more precise. That compared with a rise of 22.4% for the MSCI World Index. The share price return came in at 31.1%, so even stronger. And that was a reflection of the fact that discount tightened from 19% to 14%. I mean, this is a kind of multi-asset fund. They pursue a number of strategies and contributions or positive contributions came from long public equity, corporate and sovereign credit, structured credit and private categories, while perhaps unsurprisingly, the short public equity positions detracted. But they also made the point that in the period, they bought back over 3 million shares. That was worth of just short of $80 million. And they were repurchased at an average discount of 16.5%. And that in itself added $0.46 cents to NAV. So it's worth just bearing that in mind. When these investment companies pursue quite active buyback programs, they are accretive to NAV. So ongoing shareholders, in theory at least, should benefit I think one of the other interesting comments in the third point results was that the manager reduced public equity net exposure over the period, or certainly over the last quarter of last year, uh, and also the first quarter of this year. So apparently it represented at that stage, or the early stage, around about 80%, and it came back to below 50%. And that was on valuation grounds. And whatever we might think of Dan Loeb, that seems to have been a relatively wise call. One of the issues around this trust has been the attempts or the desire of some investors to see the uh, discount narrow, and uh, they've announced a number of measures to do that. 
along with the board changes that have resulted from the uh, discussions, shall we say, with the investors. Has that been successful? And if so, uh, how uh, successful has it been so far? And how does that compare to, say, what uh, is happening at Pershing Square Holdings, which is also uh, trying to do something similar? So third point investors, I've got it on about a 16.5% discount at the moment, $24.20 share price. That discount compares with an average of about 14% over the previous 12 months. So if anything, it's a little bit wider than that average, clearly, though it has moved quite a lot over that time. So that discount persists. Uh, We talked relatively recently about the 2022 exchange facility mechanism, whereby Again, my recollection is about 75 million shares, something of that nature, were converted into the master fund. But that does not seem to have had any kind of discernible impact on the rating to date. Though, as you know, we have seen various board changes there and they are compelled or minded to keep looking at different ways to narrow that discount. In terms of Pershing Square, well, that's still not a big discount, actually. I mean, we talked about that, I think, relatively recently as well. 33% discount at the moment for Pershing Square Holdings. So again, that looks pretty ingrained, average 28% discount over the previous 12 months. Yes, I probably shouldn't say this, but I was quite amused when I had a quick look at the annual report to see that uh, the commentary by uh, the investment manager was not very prominent. It was sort of buried away towards the back of the book. Maybe (laughs) they were slightly concerned that uh, Dan Lowe might let off another broadside against the shareholders, but of course he wouldn't be stupid enough to do that. Uh, I do think it was interesting in their comments there that they said that um, obviously 2022 this year is going to be, you know, there's a lot of volatility. They pointed out dispersion in returns. And, uh, you know, Dan Lowe says his business has always embraced shifting market regimes and now has dry powder to deploy opportunistically as interesting new opportunities present themselves. And uh, they're saying that uh, if they get see normalization later this year, that will in some ways presage a return to the firm's original mandate of event-driven value-oriented investing. Anyway, it's uh, interesting to watch what these hedge funds are up to and uh, the language in which they express themselves, sometimes quite moderate, sometimes perhaps rather more extreme. That brings us to the end of our normal results. I think we just got time quickly to run through some NAV updates for commercial property trusts. Well, three of those and one set of annual results. So let's kick off with the annual results. Uh, Standard Life Investments Property, ticker SLI. Did they have a good year last year, like everybody, uh, other commercial property trusts? Yes, is the short answer. Their NAV total return was up just short of 29%, but in share price total return terms, they were up 43% as that discount narrowed in. So again, we talked on any number of occasions about how commercial property, UK commercial property, really bounced back last year. And that was certainly the case for the Standard Life Fund. In terms of where the portfolio is, or was, I should say, at the end of 2021, it was valued at just short of £500 million. The manager, the investment team have been busy in terms of making new acquisitions, and they've also made some disposals as well. In terms of the rent collection, that came in at about 96% of rent during 2021 had been collected. And they've also announced relatively recently, actually, uh, an increase in their uh, quarterly dividend, which gives them an annualised rate of about 4p or so. But certainly in the period for 2021, their dividend cover was at about 98%. Okay, and then quickly on these uh, other updates, three months NAVs, and uh, well, we'll have to see how good they are. They've probably been quite good, haven't they, for some of these property companies? Yeah, I I think the picture is overall is pretty positive. So BMO Commercial Property, to cover that one off first, they generated an NAV total return of 7.4%, a positive return in the first three months of the year. Their share price total return came in at 11% as their discount narrowed in. This is a pretty big property portfolio valued uh, not too far up 1.3 billion now. I think what's quite interesting, because it's quite a widespread portfolio in terms of what's working and what's struggling a little bit. So industrial and logistics, that was up 12%. Retail warehouses up nearly 17%. But Sir Christopher's Place, which is a London, Oxford Street-based estate, very much focused on retail market, that uh, was up 0.1%. Why was that significant? Because it was the first positive quarter since the outset of the pandemic. So perhaps Uh, a little kind of green shoot there for retail. And then the other two, BMO Real Estate Investments. So again, trading update for three months to the end of March, NAV total return of 6.6%. So a little bit behind the BMO commercial property, but not too far. Share price total return up 11.3%. This portfolio is a bit smaller. It's valued at £402 million. 
But again, a similar story, key driver was the industrial sector, and that actually represented about 54% of the whole portfolio value, and that was up 6.3% in that period. And then finally, impact healthcare, REIT, slightly different vehicle, obviously. Again, in that three-month period, NAV total return up 3.6%. So this portfolio was valued at the end of March, 484 uh, million pounds, and that represented a 2.9% increase on a like-for-like basis over that quarter. Um, it's interesting, actually, to see in, in some of these updates what they say with regard to rent reviews. So of the 69 rent reviews completed, they saw an average uplift of 4% per annum, and that was in line with the rental increase cap. So we often talk about the cap and the collar in some of these property portfolios. Um, the dividend per share came in at one spot 635p, and that was in line with the target of 6.54p per share for the year to the end of December. So I guess the only point to make there is that with these cap and collar arrangements, you do get inflation protection. But obviously, if inflation now running at uh, current levels, you know, 8%, 9%, even 10%, some of you think it might get to, that protection won't kick in immediately, indeed, if it does at all. So uh, some of these rental income generating property companies, they're not going to see full inflation matching in their in their rentals from now, given where inflation is. Um, but they're still doing pretty positively on the valuation front. So uh, those returns seem to me pretty good for the first quarter anyway, while equity markets have been uh, have been pretty weak. Yeah, and I think they're all very fair comments. Okay, so that's all we have time for this week. Thank you, Simon, as always, for your insightful comments and uh, we should look forward to resuming next week which again will be a, uh, a relatively short week thank you very much this has been a Moneymakers investment trust podcast these podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels you can sign up on the Moneymakers website www.money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.